All right, I hope everybody has a Bible. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. So please go ahead and open up to Revelation 1 if you have not already. In our evangelical culture today, so in the this part of society that claims to be Christian, it's common for Christians to have pictures of Jesus Christ. Uh, they exist in artwork uh, inside churches. They exist in books. They exist in the walls of fellowship halls and in church offices. They fill the homes of believers as well. They're popular in children's Bibles, and they are especially all over the place online, like social media, websites, and things like that. Uh, people were all just in an uproar recently, actually, over a picture. I think uh, Kessner might have shared it with me a picture of someone's rendition of Jesus, and they were trying to make the point that this is what he actually looked like, this is what his ethnicity should be. And what ends up happening is every culture, every ethnicity, ends up at some point making God in their own image, essentially, making up a God after themselves. And so you have like an African Jesus, you have an Anglo Jesus, you have even like a Chinese Jesus, when of course we all actually know that Jesus had Hebrew or Jewish in other words, an Israelite ethnicity, even though he was born to this world in a supernatural way. He was born to Mary, who was an Israelite, and he was sovereignly generated in her womb. He wasn't conceived like every other person after Adam and Eve. His birth was a true miracle, but he was definitely an Israelite. He wouldn't look like you know, someone from Madagascar. He wouldn't look like someone from uh, you know, Berlin or from... Uh, Jersey? Yeah, not bad either. <laughs> Japan. I was going to say Japan or Mongolia or something like that. But in all of the Bible, though, we don't have any description of his physical characteristics. There's nothing. We don't know his height, his build, if he was light-skinned or dark-skinned. The Bible seems to go out of its way to not mention what Jesus actually looked like. The closest thing that we have is Isaiah 53, really. and It's one of the servant songs, and all that we're told there is that he will be of no beauty or majesty so that anyone would desire him. He, in other words, he wasn't you know, some you know, supermodel type of looking person because you know, typically attractive people have people that are attracted to them. That's just how that works. But the Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus looked like. And this is because Jesus is God, of course, and God takes his law seriously. Having an image of God is a violation of the second commandment. And there's a lot that we can say here and get into, things that we don't have time for tonight. That's not really the point of the text. But I bring it up because in our passage tonight, we actually have a description of Jesus. We have before us in our text tonight, the glorious Christ. And John describes him with physical characteristics. But remember what I just said, because these physical characteristics that you hopefully already read in your small group, they're not there to teach us what he physically looked like, but rather to represent who he actually is and to represent what he's actually like. John is telling us who Jesus is and not what he looks like, as a matter of fact. But he's doing it by describing him with physical characteristics. But as I read it to you, or since you already did read it, you're not to actually image Christ in your head, as difficult as it may be to not do that. Because these descriptions are, are meant to make you know what Christ is like, not what he physically looks like. And we should understand the description scripturally and spiritually. 
but not literally. And we'll say more about that later. So let's read the passage, though, and then we'll, we'll pray asking God's blessing for our time in his word. So the reading of God's word, beginning in Revelation chapter, excuse me, verse 9 in chapter 1, reads this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for your word and how you how it is that you have preserved it. We know that it is a guide to our path, a lamp to our feet. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, that you would make us to hear through the wisdom that you give to us. Lord, we, we know that these um, things are difficult to understand and impossible to understand apart from the work of your spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray for Christ's glory's sake that you would give to us all understanding and help us to rightly look at your word and be encouraged from it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have in the text the first great vision that John gets here in Revelation. The exalted and glorified Christ among the seven candlesticks or among the the seven lampstands. This is the kind of literature that the book is known for. But remember the, our premise from earlier sermons. God is meaning for us to understand these things. He's giving it to you so that you who are spirit-filled may be encouraged and blessed. So let me give you an outline of the passage from the start here because there's a lot here. And we're not going to be able to cover everything tonight. We're going to deal with this, uh, this section of scripture on the glorious Christ over two sermons. But let me give you this outline so you have a, so you can kind of frame your thoughts as we work through it. And we're going to just follow the paragraph breaks that most of our Bibles have, actually. Uh, that's how Denny Burke outlines it in his commentary, even. And so section one deals with the plan of Christ. And in that, we have revelation and witness along with suffering, endurance in Christ, and endurance in Christ's kingdom. And that's verse 9 to 11. And then in the second section, 12 to 16, we are, have in view the person of Christ. And it's given to us in such a way that should have us to be in awe and it should inspire us. And as you'll see, John ends up staying within the categories we've already looked at in depth over the last two sermons. Those categories are those offices that Christ executes as Redeemer, prophet, priest, and king. And then lastly, the section closes by having us consider the power and the deity of Christ. 
and the whole section, especially the last section of 16 or 17 through 20, I should say, it serves to encourage the church on how to deal with what will soon be revealed. Because remember, he's, he's writing to these seven churches, specific messages to these seven churches, and these seven churches represent the church, the whole church in this period of time in between Christ's first and second coming as well, but then the whole rest of the book of Revelation as well as to each of these seven churches and to every church in this age. And so this section here is to serve to help us to be encouraged as we deal with what's going to be revealed after. So let's consider the first section. John is on an island called Patmos, and he's there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's the only specific information we're given. We're not told exactly, specifically beyond that. If we were to just take that information, that he's there on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, we may think that he's there with the purpose to evangelize, right? I think about the missionary we support, Trevor Johnson. We might say of him that he, well, uh, while he was there at least, I know he's back in the United States now, uh, he tries to get um, legal permission to be back in the country. But we might say of him that he was there in Papua on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, there to you know, be an evangelist, there to share the hope of the good news that, that exists within him. But that's not what's going on here. Uh, John's not at Patmos to evangelize the people that, in, that live in that area. The testimony of church history informs us that John is here in isolation, actually, that Patmos is like a prison island, something maybe kind of like Alcatraz in, in our modern time. And he's there um, in isolation under persecution for his faith. John is here at Patmos on account of his faith and trust in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It's because he didn't deny Christ and his word. He's at Patmos because he didn't cave to the pressure of society around him and the pressure of the world and deny his Lord and Savior. And if you remember from last time, there are the last few sermons, I guess, there's a an emperor right now who's named uh, Domitian, and he's instituting uh, emperor worship. What do you call it in the Latin? It was Dominus Deus, like that you have to call the emperor Lord and God. And so John, of course, not willing to do something like that, he's been imprisoned now on Patmos. And this is exemplary for us, friends. Revelation is instructing us on how to follow Christ in a world that is hostile to the gospel. It's instructing us on how to follow Christ when the world actually hates Christ and those who would follow him. The world and those who love the world don't love the gospel of Christ. And saints in John's time, as well as saints in every age in, that are in this present evil age, this time between Christ's first and second coming, which means us as well, us included, will come under persecution. It's a rare thing when it doesn't happen even. And we should distinguish between kinds of persecution. We were talking about this a little bit in our small group this, this evening, evil, even. Uh, it will vary. Persecution will vary depending upon the nation and the place that the laws, um, the, the place where you're at, where the laws are and what those laws establish. But if you remember for John, they just entered into this time of forced emperor worship. And so depending upon the culture that you live in, there will be things which impose upon your ability to worship the Lord and some level of persecution will be found. The, the whole book of Revelation is dealing with this, really. The apostle Paul, he, he, remember, he writes to the evangelist Timothy in, I think it's 3.12, that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. We might say it like this even. 
that all who stand for and upon the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, which is what John opens up with here in verse 9, that they will suffer persecution. All who stand for and hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus will suffer persecution. And the rest of this letter affirms it even. If you look, you could just keep your finger there. Look over to Revelation 6, 9. There we read, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, those who had been killed, in other words, for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Uh, Revelation twelve seventeen. so there's a couple chapters over again. Again, you saw the word of God was included there, twelve seventeen. Then the dragon, which the dragon, as you'll see, is not a like literal dragon. It's an um, analogy uh, pointing towards those that are opposed to Christ, often this beast, which is a state, a government. And it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So there again, those who keep the testimony of Jesus are going to have this dragon, this beast, come against them. And then lastly, Revelation 20, verse 4. It says, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were to those whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, who have had their head cut off for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you see, Wherever someone is looking to keep the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, the world will oppose you. It must. As Romans 8 says, the carnal mind is enmity with God. It has no desire to please God, and it cannot. A fallen person actually can't please God. A miracle needs to happen if that is going to change. It's the miracle of the new birth, where the, the reality that God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit from before time covenanted together to redeem a people, to purchase a special gift unto the Son, to worship Him and adore Him. And so in time, Jesus comes into the world born of a virgin, and He lives a perfectly holy life, never once sinning. He's, a, he's the second Adam, as it were. And so He lives this life not for His own self, because He didn't need to, uh, to come and do this for Himself. He did it for all of those that were chosen Him from for the foundation of the world. And so he goes to the cross without having ever sinned, and he dies on the cross. And he's when he's there dying on the cross, he's taking upon himself the wrath, the punishment that everyone who would believe in him deserves. And he doesn't stay dead because he was not a sinner himself, and so he didn't have to pay any penalty. And he was risen on the third day, and he was seen by other disciples at that point. And then he ascended to heaven where he lives to make intercession for those who will one day be saved. So he, he does all of this, and when, because he does that, the Holy Spirit in time applies salvation to us who, who um, are given faith. And that's the, the new birth. When you're born again at that point, and then you want to please God. You desire to hear sermons. You want to know more about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and their plan of redemption, and the glory that they deserve. And at some level, when that happens to you, those who are opposed to Christ, those who haven't had that new birth happen to them, they'll 
end up persecuting those who had have happened, who it has happened to, to those who do bear the testimony of Christ. And John himself was not immune to this. Uh, again, depending on the culture you live in, the society might be different. I mean, odds are at this point here in America, odds are low that you'll die for being a Christian. Although it has happened where people come in and they shoot up churches because they're you know angry at God, but it's not a sort of, right now at least some sort of thing where it's happened all the time. But if you live like in Iran or China or somewhere like that, yeah. Yeah, that's happened. Yeah, that's, that's, that's happened. Not a school shooting, but like a church shooting, I guess you would say, right? Well, school shootings. There has been a school shooting, like like where there was this kid went around and he asked them like, if they were a Christian. And if they say yes, he you know pulled the trigger. It's been, that was years ago. But so that type of stuff does happen. There was even something at a place of business, I forget, where two of some guy did a similar sort of thing. That type of stuff does happen here in the United States, and it might be happening all the more increasingly, especially as our government is showing that they are opposed to Christianity. But right now, for the most part, I mean, if you are going to live a Christian life and to be hold fast to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, it'll look like people not wanting to be your friend, people making fun of you, you being like, quote, canceled or whatever for your views, being called a bigot or, or foolish or whatever. But that's that that's this that's still persecution it's just not the type that necessarily leads to death yet here in our here in our country but it might get to that we don't know and so john himself of course is not immune to persecution uh, he alludes to this even in verse 9 he says john where he says he's our brother and partner in other words he's involved himself he's not above these things the christian church is a family john is the original is the is the original recipient or he's he's writing to the original recipients of the this letter which are those seven churches and so he's a brother to them and he's a brother to us as well too and again that acknowledges that this part of a kingdom like carrying over that idea from last time as well that Christ has a kingdom, that he is reigning, and Christ Jesus is the elder brother, and all who are, who are united to him are part of his kingdom, this redemptive kingdom, and we are reigning with him. And look at what verse 9 says. John is with them as a partner and brother in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. He maintains his testimony, because of the grace given to him in Christ. People who, excuse me, uh, G.K. Beale notes that one cannot exercise kingdom rule except through tribulation and endurance. So, in other words, we need to understand, you guys need to get this, that the Christian life in this present evil age isn't ever going to be one in which there is only peace and love and joy. You will have that at some time. That's definitely part of it. But it's not going to be only that. Uh, we will have that when Christ consummates his kingdom at the second coming, at the parousia. But until then, Christians are reigning with Christ with patient endurance through all kinds of tribulations. Whether that is a struggle with our flesh and sinful desires, whether that's the impact of what we call like natural disasters on, in society, and an overreaching government that has forgotten how, that they are supposed to serve Christ, whether it's interacting with idol worshipers, uh, depression, the loss of a loved one, and yes, even violence done to us for our faith, 
we are active participants in reigning with Christ through these very things, just like John is claiming of himself. And we sh it shouldn't be all that surprising that's the case actually, right? Because those are the same things that Christ reigned through when he inaugurated his kingdom. Think about it. When Jesus came, was it all love and joy and peace all the time? It wasn't, right? He was, you know, ridiculed, mocked. They attempted to kill him multiple times before it was the time appointed in which he would die and go to the cross. He dealt with those things and more. And of course, he had victory over those things through his suffering, right? Through the cross. And that means that so will we. That's how a, the Christian has victory. It's not by establishing God's law as a standard in the, in the land of pagans, though, of course, that would be good. But it's by overcoming through our faith and enduring in the testimony of Christ in the very face of trials, in the very face of tribulations. That's what you'll see soon in this next chapter, actually. Now, one of the things that Christ tells the seven churches is that they will be overcomers. They'll be conquerors if they heed his word, if they heed his warnings to them. And they stay true to the word of God and the testimony of Christ and the specific instruction given to them. So listen to G.K. Beale again. Here, he's good here. He says, he says, Revelation reveals that the saints' reign consists in overcoming by not compromising their faithful witness in the face of trials, ruling over the powers of evil, defeating sin in their lives, as well as having begun to rule over death and Satan through their identification with Jesus. This endurance is part of the process of overcoming. So even note one of the first, first things he said. He says that the saints, in other words, Christians, they reign and they overcome by not compromising their faithful witness in the face of trials. Think about the church today. How much of the church is willing to compromise today? How, how much of the people that you know, maybe that are professing Christ, are willing to compromise what the Bible says so as to fit in with the world? It's okay to be homosexual. It's okay to have sex outside of marriage. Right? But those are the types of things that the world says. And there are many churches that are compromising to do that. And so what really you should see here is they're not going to be overcoming. They're not conquering because they are, you know, they're, they're melding with the world. And so, again, this revelation that God has given to John, this apocalypse of Jesus, is to help the church to know how to overcome, how to be encouraged in these types of things, how to stay, the, stay true north to stay on course looking to Christ. So friends, you know, don't fall for that trap that tries to sell Christianity as a refuge from trials and suffering in this world as well. That's another thing that churches try to do. They try to sell Christianity as a, as a refuge, as a safe place that's free from suffering and trials. Christians are going to suffer and deal with trials just like people who aren't Christian will. It may even be God's will that as part of his purpose to perfect Christ in you, that he might actually cause you in a way, cause you to suffer in a way that is even greater than people who don't belong to him in a salvific way. That might be part of his plan in conforming you to Christ and sanctifying you and maturing you and causing you to be, to have assurance in your salvation. I remember back before, my wife and I got uh, pregnant with Silas. Anna was pregnant with twins. And it was the Lord's will that we lost those babies around 15 weeks old. Yeah, we were walking. I remember it. 
we were in Santa Barbara on vacation and we were just we're going to shops and she was started bleeding. And so we, you know, she was worried. And so we made an appointment to the, to go to the doctor. And by the time that we got to the doctor and they couldn't find heartbeats for the, for the two babies. And one of the hard things about it was that we both knew people who didn't care about God and yet, uh, you know, people who were still in their sins and they were and they were having babies with no problem, with no issues, even people who, you know, who weren't married. And that was hard, you know, uh, and here we are, you know, I'm we're we want to be, you know, committed Christians and we want to glorify God with our lives. And yet here we have to deal with this trial and it was hard and a person can easily get lost in sinful thoughts in that, such a scenario, a legalistic and meritorious mindset can flourish in those situations and one could even offend the lord with his or her mouth in situations like that with like perhaps you know something like oh well we don't deserve this or you know so and so they don't deserve that good thing it's not fair yeah but the christian life isn't one that's free from troubles and trials the difference between christians and the world in this regard is that we have christ with us through these trials that though we go through these trials we don't go through them alone and away from the comfort that God will supply. And sometimes you might not feel that comfort and know that right away, but eventually you do. And we overcome them through the word of God and the testimony of Jesus by enduring through them. We don't remain in despair through them, but we overcome by the word of God and the comfort that it gives us in enabling us to patiently endure these things because of the hope that we have in Christ. Since again, and these are only, we know as Christians, only temporary trials as well. We have an eternal glory before us. This is even a short time in comparison. Maybe if you might live to 100 years, maybe 110, if that's God's will for you. And even though in those 110 years that you live on this earth, if Christ doesn't come before then, you have to deal with trials and tribulations. Well, that's still a short time compared to an eternity in the new creation, right? So it's, it's a light momentary affliction, as it were, in that sense. Now, notice verse 10. John is in the spirit, we read. Yeah, that's how it starts out. He says, I was in the spirit. That's an interesting phrase. I would be really leery if I heard someone say that today. I want to know what they mean by that. And when they say that they are in the spirit, are they just trying to sound pious or something? Because in a sense, right, the Christian is always in the spirit. In the sense that the Spirit indwells every believer, uh, this there's something more here with John when he's saying that he was in the Spirit. In the same phrase is used four times in Revelation, so it's also in chapter four, chapter seventeen, and chapter twenty-one. And each time it's in light of you know a new turn of revelation that he gets. The same sort of language is found in Ezekiel and the prophecies that he received. And so what God is doing is. By John saying, I was in the spirit, is he's establishing him as a prophet. He's the same sort of prophet as like the Old Testament prophets. And he's saying, in other words, that John now is speaking for the Lord. He's going to speak for him. John has been seized by divinity for a purpose, as it were. And God chose to reveal to him, to give to him this vision on the Lord's day, we read in verse 10. This is the first reference in scripture that talks about the Lord's day. It's the first time we see this phrase. It's different than the day of the Lord. Obviously, the day of the Lord is often that day of judgment when that's what usually the day of the Lord is. This is the Lord's day. It's different than that. 
and we know the early church in their writings, based off of the tradition given to them by the apostles, gathered to worship the Lord on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And this became known as the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath, not the Jewish Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath happened on Saturday. The Christian Sabbath happened on Sunday. It was known as the Lord's Day. The Jewish Sabbath was in the Old Covenant. The Christian Sabbath is in the time period of the New Covenant, when the New Covenant has been revealed. And so the implication is that John, even though he's exiled on this prison island, he's still worshiping. We in the New Covenant worship in spirit and truth, and no matter where we are, we set apart the Lord's Day to worship the Lord. Uh, we see the apostles doing that even in, um, in the book of Acts, like Peter and uh, John are in jail, and, as, and, and they're still worshiping the Lord there. Even though they're not gathered with the church, they're able to still worship God where they're at. John here at Patmos, he's not willingly apart from the body. He's there because he's being punished. He's being persecuted. But that doesn't stop him from worshiping the Lord. He's, in, he's exiled, but he can still worship the Lord. That's part of overcoming and conquering as a Christian even. They, you, they, nobody can technically stop it unless they put you to death. But even then, then you enter into the Lord's presence where you're worshiping him even at a greater state. So that's part of overcoming and conquering as a Christian. And most likely, John was caught up in prayer for the seven churches that he mentioned. He's probably praying for them when the Spirit comes upon him to reveal these things. And he tells him to write down what he sees. And remember, it's not just the specific instruction for the churches in chapter 2 and 3 that he wants the specific churches to know. It's the whole of Revelation. It's, it's the whole book. There's a lot going on here. And this is just the first, the first version, vision that John gets. So Joel Beakey describes it like this. Um, maybe you could relate to this. Has everybody in here been on a plane before? Has everybody? Has anybody not been on a plane? No to the Watson plane rides? Yes? Okay. Terrified of plane rides. Okay. If you go into a plane and you look down at the world when you're in a plane, everything looks tiny and small. It looks all... It looks different. It looks awesome. Um, you see the bigger picture. And so it's kind of like that for John with this vision. John is getting to see the big picture. On earth, in time, in space, we don't know what the future will bring. But God lifts John up and he gives him a heavenly vision of the church represented by candlesticks or lampstands. And then God shows John the whole sweep of church history. Even from the garden on, as we'll see in Revelation 12, it talks about things that happened in the Garden of Eden. And he shows John all of the church's activity in a general sense from beginning to end. God doesn't wonder what will happen next, like you and me. Like you might be wondering, what am I going to do when I get home? I don't know, you know, what the plan is or whatever. Sleep, me too. Um, but but there are often times where we don't know what the future is going to hold. But that's not it's not like that for God. He's not wondering what current leftist, liberal, and socialist trend in America uh, if it will if it will subside or not. He knows all things. And as Acts 15, 18 says, known unto God are all his wonderful works from the beginning of time, from the beginning of the world. That's why he can show John the things that he does here. Because from God's point of view, these things, everything that's happening in, Re in Revelation, even the ones that haven't happened yet, they are certain. This is it's not a perfect analogy, but maybe hopefully to make sense a little bit, I think it makes the point. It's as if God set up like a very elaborate and detailed domino chain. And in creation, the first domino is flicked over, 
knocked over. And since then, those dominoes are following the path. They're knocking each other down all the way to the very end. From from our point of view, when that last domino falls, that's when Christ comes again and he consummates the kingdom. Everything is happening according to uh, what God has set up and decreed. And at that point, when that, quote, last domino falls, that's when he ushers in the eternal age. But look how gracious and merciful God is toward us in Revelation. He lets John see these things. And then we get to see them through John. Do you see the mercy of the Lord, you guys, in that? Do you see why God, before showing John and us through John, would say that we are blessed if we read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy of this book? He's showing us the whole sweep of church history, what has happened and what will happen. He doesn't have to do that, but he does it to encourage us, to strengthen us, to to keep us and uh, persevere us. And it's the second section where we get to this first great vision. So verse 12 says that he turned to see the voice. He heard a voice. He turns to see it, to see what? A voice that should be familiar to him, right? A voice that he often heard. Remember, this is John. This is the beloved disciple. He's the one that was instructed by the Lord from the cross to care for his mother, Mary. And this is the one who outran Peter to the tomb. He's the one who was leaning upon Jesus' chest in the upper room discourse right before he instituted the Lord's Supper. And yet, there's something different about this voice. It's familiar, but he doesn't immediately recognize it. It's a, it's a voice like that of a loud trumpet, verse 10, but also a familiar voice. And he turns and he sees the Son of Man, which is a, the favorite title of Jesus in, during his ministry. And he sees these seven golden lampstands. And we know that those represent the churches and the church as a whole. We read that in verse 20. And we also know that he falls down as dead upon seeing this vision. So verse 17 tells us, but this is the glorified Christ. This is Christ Jesus in all of his beauty. And we don't have time tonight to break down the rest of the passage. We're not going to be able to do that tonight. We'll say that for part two, which is absolutely, though, filled with allusions back to the Old Testament. Like, I mean, from Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, all of these descriptions that we read, they're all allusions pointing back to things that people who already knew the Lord should know and be aware of. And so we'll see next week as we deal with the specific specifics of the visions and the implication of the Son of Man in the midst of the churches. But for tonight, I want to close with us preparing for next week, thinking about what I mentioned at the beginning of tonight's sermon. John's vision of the Son of Man includes descriptions of his clothes, his head, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his right hand, his mouth, his face. And so an artist, if he or she wanted to, though I wouldn't recommend it, they could attempt to recreate an image based off of what was read here. An artist can't do that for Jesus otherwise because there's no, there's no description of him recorded anywhere else in Scripture. I mean, if the Bible told us that Jesus was like 6'1", with short brown hair, brown eyes, and bronze skin, and a moderate build, and just think every guy that looked like that could potentially have a complex... I think, oh, I look just like, like oh, I might have just described Terry, actually. It would be a, a train wreck. You know, the, the, <laughs> I'm not saying anything about you, Terry. But it's a blessing that we don't have to think like that. Uh, this, this vision of Christ that we see here is not to be understood literally. 
if you think about it even, how can you draw a face that glows like the sun? Or how could you make him with a giant right hand holding seven stars? These are, these are things that are meant to be understood scripturally and spiritually so that we may know who and what our Lord Jesus Christ is. Because we don't worship Jesus because of what he looks like. We worship him for who he is and what he's done. The description that we'll go over next week, it's not given to us to make us engage the Lord God with our eyes or even with our imagination. To, to know what Jesus looks like in his glorified state or something like that. But to know, to know the glorious Christ as who he is and what he has done. Because it's those things that will prepare us to live for him. Knowing his physical characteristics won't help you to have patient endurance. It doesn't help you to partner with him and, and, and other saints in tribulation. This wonderful and glorious picture that we're given of Christ here is not in the slightest way meant for our, our eyes or our imagination. It, it's meant to encourage our souls. It's meant to ignite our hearts in, in adoration for him and to prepare us to live and even die for the Lord Jesus because he's everything to us. And after all, he died for us, right? Isn't that what we profess and confess? He died for us first. And when any person becomes a Christian, when they convert to Christianity, they die to themselves spiritually at that time as well because we also at that time become spiritually alive to Christ. But the reality, friends, is that someday we may find ourselves in a culture that will demand our lives as payment for worshiping Christ. But just knowing what he looks like, that's not going to help you want to, to, to live for him and even be willing to die for him. It's who he is and what he's done that enables you to do that. And that's what these descriptions are doing here. The, even, you know, your physical body belongs to the Lord. The whole man or woman is the Lord's body and spirit. And if you have a Christ that is less than the one who is described here, which we'll get into what these things mean next week, then you won't be fit for Patmos, as it were. I hope that none of us will ever have to deal with our own version of Patmos. But if it comes to that, if it ever comes to that, know that this Christ, the one that is described here in this fantastical way in verses especially 12 to 16, know that this Christ, not, his, not the physical way he looks, but what it means, what, the, what, he's, what, it's, what he's saying by describing him in this way, he's the only one that can persevere you through such tribulation. He holds the church in his right hand. And none can finally defeat his kingdom, and no tribulation is greater than him. So next week, Lord willing, we'll consider this vision of the Lord Jesus more closely. But let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful to you for your word, Lord, and the instruction that you give us in it. We know, God, that many in our culture today want to put forth Christianity as a refuge and as a shelter from all trouble and tribulation, and suffering, and persecution. And we know, God, that that is part of it, that when you consummate your kingdom, that those things will all be true. But while we are in this present evil age, Lord, help us to not be deceived, and to know that even you take tribulation and suffering and use it for good in the lives of those who are united to Christ, just as you used it for good in the suffering of our Lord when he went to the cross to, to defeat death, and to redeem all of those who were chosen in him. 
So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to think rightly about you, help us to not think of you in such a way that would be idolatrous, but help us to know you as you have revealed yourself. Help us to think deeply about the way that you are and what it is that you have done and help us to glorify you with our every thought. We need you, Lord, always, even to think rightly about you. We need you. So please, God, help us to do that all for Christ's glory's sake. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, guys, any questions? Now's the time. Could I be more clear about something? I didn't mean to say anything to Terry about that. Yeah? I just looked over and I was like, oh, six one, brown hair, brown skin, stud. What's up, Bobby? Yeah. Hey, hold on, listen up. Ivan has a question. A sense of humor. Yeah, so we didn't really get into I mean like actors, but I, I would I think yes, even as his um so Jesus is in his person, he has two natures a divine nature and a human nature and i would say that even in his divine nature there's a sense of humor um that there are, that god about the reason that we have a sense of humor is because we're made in god's image and so platypus is glorious why would you laugh at that my goodness but yes that's the humor for sure for your jokes i don't know all right, good job, you guys, tonight.